Hello, podcast listeners. You have been so patient. All through last year, you waited while we got our ducks in a row. We moved cities, we missed deadlines, and we only got a handful of shows produced. And through it all, you were patient. Some of you are even still waiting on items we promised you in the 2012 Kickstarter campaign. But even in that case, with the exception of a few grumbles, you have been patient. Thank you. Thank you. It's 2014. I'm now speaking to you from our new studios here in the heart of the Chicago Loop. We're back. We are in full effect. And we thank you for your patience. Now, here's what you can expect from 2014. First, we're back on a full production schedule. And that means that over the next 12 months, we're committed to producing at least 36 shows. In other words, we'll be making 9 or 10 new shows over every stretch of 13 weeks. Also, all the Kickstarter items will be sent out. This means that every T-shirt and every poster that we promised you is going to be on its way very soon. Now, I can't tell you how thankful we are that a lot more of you didn't yell at us about that. Thank you for being so supportive and so understanding. I'm so glad to be at a point where things are settling down and we can get back to making radio. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting this work and for caring about good conversations. Thank you for telling your friends about the show. And thank you, above all, for all the kind words you have sent to us while we were getting our act together. It is very much appreciated. And now, I'm very happy to welcome you to the first show of 2014. Happy New Year. From the studios of WBEZ in Chicago, Illinois, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we hear part one of our interview with Phyllis Tickle, who talks to us about the great emergence, the revolution that is reshaping our society and the church itself. Later on the broadcast, Katie Scroggin reviews a recent biography of philosopher Alain Badu by Hollis Phelps. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Phyllis Tickle. Dr. Tickle was the founding editor of the Religion Department of Publishers Weekly, the international journal of the book industry. She is the author of over two dozen books in religion and spirituality, most recently, Emergence Christianity, What It Is, Where It Is Going, and Why It Matters. Also, The Great Emergence, How Christianity is Changing and Why, and The Words of Jesus, A Gospel of of the Sayings of Our Lord. In 2004, she received the honorary degree of Doctor of Humane Letters from the Berkeley School of Divinity at Yale University. In 2009, she received an honorary Doctor of Humane Letters from North Park University. She is a lay Eucharistic minister and a lector in the Episcopal Church, and she is the mother of seven children. And with her physician husband, she makes her home on a small farm in Lucy, Tennessee. Phyllis Tickle, welcome to Things Not Seen. 
thank you. It's wonderful to be here. It's very kind of you to have me, in fact. Well, I want to jump right in and, and start to talk about this notion of emergence Christianity. And I, I've heard you speak before, and, and you've made the claim in the past that Christianity moves forward in 500-year cycles. Yes. And Can you explain for our listeners what you mean by this? Yes, uh, and uh, uh, let me preface it by saying, David, that what we are, are talking about is not just Christianity. About every 500 years, for some reason, and um, who knows what it is, systems theorists would give you a whole spiel about what it is and why it is. Uh, and approximately every 500 years, those cultures or societies which were susceptible to receiving their Christianity through the Latin language go through a great upheaval. Now, what I just said was a mouthful. What I'm trying to avoid um, saying is that this is a Western phenomenon. It is not. Um, it really does happen in those parts of the world that either received their Christianity through Latin, as opposed to Syriac or Greek, or were colonized or were colonialized by those who so received, which is to say that you can see this phenomenon in other parts of the world. However, having said all of that in the name of, of integrity and honesty, it's true that it, most, uh, it is most dramatically present in Western or European or Caucasian history. So to that good end, having, having bowed toward uh, the greater picture, let me deal uh, strictly with the Caucasian or Western or, or First World, whatever you want to call it, experience, which is to say that, uh, and we all know it, we just haven't necessarily thought about it, which is to say that uh, we're in the 21st century and we're obviously going through a major time of cataclysmic shifts. Um, and it's across the board, every part of what we're doing. 500 years ago, in the 16th century, we did the same exact thing, except we called it the Great Reformation then instead of the Great Emergence. And a 1,000 years ago, 500 years before the Great Reformation in the, in the 11th century, um, we did this thing called the Great Schism or the Great Schism, according to where you grew up and who, who, how your mama taught you to say it, but it's the same thing. Um, 1,500 years ago, in the 6th century, we went through what we call the Great Decline and Fall. And then, of course, 2,000 years ago, in the 1st century, we went through the thing that either is called the Great Transformation or the Great Transition. Scholars will waffle back and forth, and I don't know if it matters. It refers to the same thing. It refers to that um, upheaval, that shift that was so dramatic that everything in, in Western history has been dated since then in terms of before or after that. Um, and for us as Christians, uh, obviously the dating is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. For our Jewish brothers and sisters, it's the destruction of the temple in 70 of the first century. doesn't matter which date you pivot from, something clearly happened. So if I'm hearing you correctly, what we're talking about here is not just a Christian phenomenon, but it's a cultural phenomenon that affects multiple religions. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, we need to say that Judaism has uh, the same pattern. Um, if you go back 500 years from the first century, if you go back 500 years before the Great Transition, uh, you hit uh, the, um, the destruction of the first temple and the institution of second temple Judaism. And if you go back 500 years before that, you hit the end of the Age of Judges and the establishment of the Davidic dynasty out of which Messiah was to come. So um, that pattern, you will see it occasionally, even in the, in the Book of Kings, you will see reference to the 500-year thing. So um, 
it's it's just there for whatever reason. I don't think the reason necessarily matters. The thing that matters is that we understand it's not just religion. Those of us who are interested in religion are the most chauvinistic people in the world. We absolutely have, you know, one one it's like monocular vision. We want everything to be about religion and that's just not true. Um when we go through these things, it really is across the whole of the culture. It's sociology, politics, economics, uh, aesthetics. Every single thing changes, including religion. Um, and uh, when, when we do it, uh, that religion, which holds hegemony or, or pride of place, and, and, and the, in our case, it's both the Judaism and Christianity that we can say hold pride of place, the two of them together anyway, Whatever holds a gemera or pride of place um, has to reshuffle and reconfigure itself. So 500 years ago, out of the Great Reformation, um, we got Protestantism. Uh, and 500 years before that, out of the Great Schism or Schism, we got Roman Catholicism as opposed to, to Catholicism, period. Um, and 500 years before that, uh, we got uh, mon- a monastic and consular, uh, a monastic Christianity. Um, so that... Um, the, the the form of Christianity, the form of religion, does indeed change. But, 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 it changes because everything around it is changing, which is what's happening now in the Great Emergence. If you remember, unless you went to, if you went to parochial school, you didn't get it quite as clearly. But if you went to secular, secondary school, you know, they taught you in history class about the 10th, 11th grade, somewhere along there, world history. They taught you, oh, the 16th century, um, that was the Reformation, um, it was the introduction and assimilation of humanism. It was uh, the establishment of the nation state. It, it, was the, it was the coming of capitalism. Uh, it was the rise of the middle class. And, oh, by the way, it gave us Protestantism, which is a much more realistic uh, look at, at what we're going through um, and what we have gone through each of these 500 years. Everything changes. But religion always... It, 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 it acts in, in concert with the society in which it exists. It's, it's contextualized. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is noted author, lecturer, and essayist Phyllis Tickle. We're discussing the phenomenon known as emergence Christianity and what it means for the Christian faith globally in the 21st century. So what, uh, I, hear, what I hear you saying is that religion very much is, is a part and parcel of, of the context of the times. But then absolutely. That, that leads to the question then, when we talk about something like, like emergence or the great emergence or emergent Christianity, and in a moment we'll talk about what these different terms mean, yeah. but are, are we just talking about now just a different form of Protestantism? Absolutely. No, 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 I answered too quickly. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, not another form of Protestantism. We're talking about another form of Christianity. As distinct um, from the rest as Anglicanism is from Protestantism or Protestantism is from Orthodoxy or Orthodoxy is from Roman Catholicism. Uh, it's, it's a whole, and several scholars have used the image, and I'm very fond of it, uh, it's a whole new tributary in the river, um, uh, the, the, the fast-moving river uh, that is Christianity in general. Um, and um, uh, as such, um, it, it's just... It, it is, there are characteristics that inform it uh, that might make it distinct uh, from the others. Um, and it's a little early on. We've been at this, what, now? In North America, we can date emergence coming from uh, the early 80s. Certainly in the continent um, of continental Europe, 
you can see it emerging in the in the 20s and 30s. Uh, it by in Australia, for instance, you can see it. Um, can see it in the early 80s too. So it, it, we've been at this less than a century, in other words, uh, any way you go at it. And there are um, characteristics that are already evidencing themselves as as being the appertaining to emergent Christianity and making them distinguishable and making it distinguishable from uh, Protestantism, Catholicism, Orthodoxy, Anglicanism. So what I'm hearing in your answer, and and this is. The, in terms of the questions that I prepared, this is sort of blowing open the questions that I prepared because it, it's clear from from your answer that to speak generally about this as a movement that has a coherent theology or a coherent liturgy is really to move in the wrong direction. That instead, w- what we're seeing seems to be a, a phenomenon that that you want to want to say is distinct from the practices of orthodoxy, Catholicism, and Protestantism. We're we're looking at behold, God is doing a new thing. But that new thing is multifaceted, and you can't just say, and that new thing is has this particular <laughs> characteristic, this particular liturgy, this particular practice. Am I hearing you correctly? You are absolutely hearing me very, very correctly. Yes, indeed. You cannot do that. Uh, and, and also, you've got to... Uh, let me confuse the issue even more. I, I find all of this very exciting, as you can tell. Uh, uh, you know, I, I wish... I, God knows I don't want to live to be 100, but I almost wish I could come back in about 50 years and see what it's all about and see where it is all played down, because it's that intriguing. But, but let me say, in, in addition to all this, 500 years ago, for instance, 500 years ago when we went through the Great Reformation, uh, Catholicism didn't cease to exist, did it? I mean, we, we both know that. Uh, it, it didn't, but it did have to reconfigure and I very often tell audiences, you know, with a grin on my face, but meaning it sincerely, that if Roman Catholics had been as obsessed with figures and statistics 500 years ago as we are today, they would have shot the Pope, burned the Vatican, and moved to China, because there was nothing to make Protestants out of except Roman Catholics. There just wasn't. I mean, that was it. And so, of course, their figures went down. In the same way... Uh, you know, we stand, we Protestants stand and, and, and wail and moan about the diminishing numbers. Well, there's nothing to make emergence Christians out of except Protestants, Roman Catholics, and Anglicans, and to some extent Orthodoxy, so they're Orthodox, though they're not many in North America yet. So that, of course, the figures are going down. At the same time, when the figures begin to go down, whatever held hegemony, starts to reconfigure and, and essentially ask, colloquially speaking, the question, what in the world am I doing wrong here? Why, why is this happening? And, and 500 years ago, when, when Rome had to do that, what did we get? We got the Council of Trent, right? I mean, we got the Counter-Reformation, we got the reinstitution of the Inquisition, which is a kind of iffy result, but, but nonetheless, it, it reconfigured. Uh, and a, as it reconfigured, it, it birthed some new things. Ignatian spirituality comes out of it. Um, and so in the same way, uh, what's happening right now is a reconfiguration of Protestantism, which is getting some interesting uh, expressions, some interesting figure, things happening. There is the neo-reform. Uh, there are the neo-reform move, uh, bodies or the neo-reform movement, whatever you want to call it, which um, fascinates me, which I greatly rem- admire, to tell you the truth which is um, a reconfiguration of some basic, primarily Calvinistic, um, doctrine and theology. Uh, you see it uh, magnificently in the work, for instance, of Tim Keller 
and the Redeemer Church movement. Um, you're seeing some of it uh, in, in Mark Driscoll, who is basically uh, originally was an emerging and seems to be moving more toward uh, the, the neo-reform. Um, and it, it's fascinating to watch. This reconfiguration is dramatic and uh, a kind of beautiful thing. Um, and I said something about convergence a minute ago, and one of the reasons I'm not quite sure where they're going to fit is that there was... It, well, as you know, there has been, uh, over the last 30 or 40 years, um, a reshuffling in American, North American evangelicalism, um, where that body is, um, oh, it's splinters maybe, splintering, uh, uh, not falling apart, that's too strong, but certainly um, if you read books like American Grace by Putnam, <laughs> you're aware that much of, there's a reshuffling, let's use that word, there's a reshuffling in evangel American evangelicalism, and part of that reshuffling 20 years ago was the birthing out, 25 years ago, was the birthing out of what's called progressive Christians, or what was called progressive Christianity, um, which was an attempt to effect certain political and moral and sociological changes upon the society without um, necessarily beating everybody over the head with evangelical theology. <laughs> that, that group now, um, instead of calling itself progressive more and more, calls itself convergent Christians or convergence Christians. Um, and uh, so that, too, is a, is a reaction on a part of established Protestantism, if you will, or what was established Protestantism, to the changes that are happening as this new thing emerges. See, that's why I hate it being emergence Christianity and the great emergence, because then you have to use the word emerging, and that makes it sound as if they're related, and that drives me crazy. But whether we like it or not, something is emerging uh, that is different from, or that is ancillary to, and part of, emergence Christianity, um, in the same way that um, uh, Calvinism was a response to um, Lutheranism in many ways. Um, so anyway, it's, it's an exciting time to watch, and it, every time I, I, I laugh and tell my husband that I go to bed every night thinking, I've got it nailed, I've got it figured, and I get up the next morning, the blessed thing has changed again. Um, it's that fluid and dynamic. I would assume that um, it, over the next 20 years, things will settle down, and we have a clearer sense of exactly where the patterns are. Meanwhile, it's an exciting ride. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is noted author, lecturer, and essayist Phyllis Tickle. We're discussing the phenomenon known as emergence Christianity and what it means for Christian faith globally in the 21st century. So let's, let's unpack this term. What is the difference between emerging church or the emergent church, which is another uh, exactly. term that I've heard, or emergence Christianity? How do these varieties fit into yeah. what you are calling the great emergence? Yeah. It's really a thick wicket uh, <laughs> when you start out. And it really, David, the interesting thing was unpacking that really didn't matter until about two or three years ago. And uh, one of the strongest, or obviously the, the most intriguing evidences of the maturation of emergence Christianity is that those divisions that you just laid out uh, have begun to matter, uh, that it matters when we speak about this whole thing, that we clean up our rhetoric and be very sure what we're talking about. Uh, and, and that kind of fascinates me and, and intrigues me. Anyway, um, let's go back 500 years to Protestantism and say that we all know, whether we're Protestant or not, 
we all know what the term Protestantism sort of refers to. We can list um, five or six sensibilities or shared proclivities or characteristics, whatever, that mark Protestantism. Um, However, we also at the same time recognize that they're Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and Lutherans, yada, 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 yada. Actually, there are only 37,000 different divisions within Protestantism, each of which is distinguishable from the other. Um, Nobody ever thought that a Lutheran was a Methodist or a Methodist was a Baptist. We recognize that they're all Protestant, but they're different from one another in the same way, in the same way. There is this thing called emergence Christianity, for better or for worse. I'm not excited about the, the term, but that seems to be the one that's going to survive. That is, we're in the time of the great emergence, and that one's probably going to survive as a title, and the Christianity coming out of it is emergence Christianity. For what it's worth, there's also emergence Judaism, but that's a different issue. Emergence Christianity uh, means that there are subgroups, uh, component parts of this new tributary that um, all share uh, a certain common characteristics and sensibilities and points of view, but that also are beginning more and more um, sharply and definitively to differ from each other. Um, and you just did it. Emerging, I-N-G, is, is probably the oldest presentation of emergence Christianity in this country, anyway, in North America in general, Canada as well as the U.S. Um, but it's different from emergent, G-E-N-T, um, and both of them are different from neo-monastics. Um, and the neo-monastics should never be confused with the hyphenateds. Uh, and the hyphenateds are entirely different, as are all the others, from small church and from missional church and from house church and from cyber church. It depends on how you slice and dice it. You can come up with some eight or ten uh, evolving or uh, more and more evolving, I suppose, um, divisions within emergence Christianity. Uh, obviously, the ones that it's easiest to speak about are emerging and emergent because they seem most um, consonant with the overarching term of emergence. Um, but um, they don't much like each other anymore. They are beginning to have the same kind of strife and um, disagreement that, for instance, Zwingli and Luther had 500 years ago. Uh, most of us remember enough history to remember that those two gentlemen didn't get on very well. And Within 10 or 12 years of the, the posting of the 95 Theses on the door of the Church of Wittenberg, they were at each other, uh, at each other's throats, as a matter of fact, and saying I'm very unkind. And then you get the Reformers. You get Calvin coming along and saying, oh, geez, you know, um, I don't agree with either of you guys. And that's happening now. Um, one of the interesting things about it all is that there's an increasing use of the word convergence Christianity, which would be certainly a happier term uh, than emergence Christianity, convergence Christians and convergence church. Uh, whether they're a division of emergence or whether it's a new title, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows yet. But nonetheless, there are differences. A emerging uh, Christians, for example, um, who, as I say, are the first to appear uh, in, in continental North America, uh, were the first to begin to organize, uh, they are increasingly moving back toward the factuality of Scripture as opposed to its actuality, whereas emergents are very clear that it's the actuality of Scripture that matters rather than its factuality. Emerging um, are definitely becoming less gender-inclusive, 
um, and emergence are becoming more militantly gender inclusive. Uh, emerging uh, are, and I don't know whether homophobic is the right word, but they certainly are less inclusive in sexual uh, orientation and practice, whereas emergence are uh, aggressively uh, all-inclusive. And so the, the, the differences go on. There are also um, structural differences. One of the things that fascinates me most about the neo-monastics is that they are the first of these groups to arrive at something that is quite definitely and clearly an international organization. Now, it doesn't have a, it doesn't have a physical location. There's not a Vatican or a Canterbury involved here. Uh, it's, it's web-based, but there's a thing called the International Community of Communities, and there are thousands of these neo-monastic uh, expressions of emergence Christians that are all connected to each other uh, around the world. They're also the first to develop um, a liturgy. There's a um, thing called the Book of Common Prayer for Ordinary Radicals, um, which is a doorstopper of a book. But what it is is the daily offices based on the liturgical year for living the neo-monastic life, both domestically and in community. Um, it, it's, it's as sure as uh, the Book of Common Prayer or anything else. Uh, it is as surely a, a, a liturgy for a group as ever there were. And so it goes on. Um, but there are divisions, and they all share certain things, and they all differ from each other um, in certain distinguishing ways. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Phyllis Tickle, who's written numerous books on a wide range of subjects relating to Christian faith. More recently, she's turned her attention to the Great Emergence, the cultural shift that is reshaping both religious faith and society in general. You can find out more about Phyllis Tickle and her work at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest is Dr. Phyllis Tickle, who's written numerous books on a wide range of subjects relating to Christian faith. Most recently, she's turned her attention to the Great Emergence, the cultural shift that is reshaping both religious faith and society in general. You can find out more about her work at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. Does emergence Christianity have a political footprint? And by this, what That's I mean is... interesting question. If we look at liberation theology, for example, that has a specific agenda for engaging faith in the world to try and make the present day better. And then on the other side of the spectrum, if we look at a quietist movement like, say, the Amish, they advocate instead just a full withdrawal from the political realm into insular communities of piety. So where does... Can we talk about where emergence Christianity falls on this spectrum, or is it too early to characterize it in a political manner? Uh, I, I don't know the answer. That's the reason I, I find it interesting. Uh, it's not the first time that I've heard somebody ask about it. And, and right now there's kind of scattergun, uh, as you just said. There's a, a, something of a scattergun approach. Uh, clearly the convergence Christians that I was talking about, um, who come up out of progressive, evan uh, progressive Christianity, up out of evangelicalism, have uh, an agenda. If you look at... Um, for instance, Brian McLaurin's book, A Generous Orthodoxy, that came out several years ago, is commonly re he's commonly regarded as the Martin Luther of emergence, and, and A Generous Orthodoxy is commonly regarded as the analog of the 95 Theses. And one of the big things there um, is greenness, um, 
a sense that one, and this is political, obviously, that one must be concerned, deeply concerned about the creation. Uh, and it's argued theologically that um, if you look at the book of Revelation, um, what happens is that the city of God, uh, the, 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 king, the God is, ah, I'll say it in a minute, the city of God is on earth, uh, and God is above, and there's free intercourse between the two. But that it is the redemption of creation that this is about. And that militates for our all being uh, deeply green, deeply concerned as Christians uh, about the creation. So that's there. If you look historically uh, at uh, the peri-emergence, the thing leading up to emergence itself, you see big movements like Dorothy Day, uh, Day and, and Peter Martin, uh, Martin, I'll say in a minute, uh, in the Catholic worker uh, thing. Deeply, you look and you see, uh, obviously, liberation. Those are there. If you look at, again, uh, McLaurin's uh, principles of uh, generous orthodoxy, um, you see also uh, a deep concern for uh, social justice, only it's defined very specifically. Uh, it's, it's defined as not that look what we have done for somebody, but look what we together have done together. Um, and, and the quip is, Jesus Christ didn't, didn't live in a, in a gated community, and he doesn't much want you to either, um, which is a way of, of getting at, at the same thing. So there are variations of it. And yes, they are what would be called political um, uh, evidences or applications of what's happening. Where it's going to come down with a central footprint beyond uh, certain kinds of social justice without, and, and very communal social justice um, and uh, greenness, uh, I can't quite tell. Um, and I don't know if anybody can tell. There doesn't, for instance, seem to be a unified, or I have missed it if there is, a unified position on things like, for instance, right now, Syria, um, on do we enter or do we not. Um, there seems to be a fair division about gun control. Um, there's a very clear, I think, stand on, uh, on abortion that it should be allowed within certain parameters, but not a clear decision about where the parameters are. So um, it's not... Evangelicalism in this country in the 70s and the 80s, certainly, could have been said to have a clear political footprint. I mean, I think you and I could both sit here and figure out what that footprint was, and we pretty much agree. I don't see it yet in emergent. Uh, obviously, religion is going to always have a political expression, or it's going to function within religion and politics within it. But it's not, to me anyway, as an observer... Real clear, beyond McLaurin's initial statements in a generous orthodoxy and some of its history, like Dorothy Day uh, and like Guterres uh, and Romero, um, not, not as clear yet as maybe it will become. Or it's entirely possible it never will coalesce, um, that there will just be a sensibility that leads the individuals to, to follow a pattern without any organized push toward it, without any expression of what they're for. I, I don't know. There, there, is a, there is a movement now internationally to do something of what you're talking about, to actually, in written form, uh, lay down some, some principles uh, of the ways in which uh, faith appertains or affects uh, conduct in, in the world outside religion. 
but that's not entirely formulated yet. So I don't know. It's, it's an interesting question. Is there going to be a clear footprint? I'm not real sure there will be. Well, Phyllis Tickle, I have very much enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. Well, thank you for having me. I loved your questions. Our guest today was Phyllis Tickle. Dr. Tickle is the founding editor of the Religion Department at Publishers Weekly, the international journal of the book industry. She's the author of over two dozen books on religion and spirituality, most recently Emergence Christianity, What It Is, Where It Is Going, and Why It Matters, also The Great Emergence, How Christianity is Changing and Why, and The Words of Jesus, A Gospel of the Sayings of Our Lord. As I mentioned, this is part one of our interview with Phyllis Tickle. We'll have part one available this week on our website, and part two will be available next week. You can listen to both of them for free. If you'd like to find out more about Phyllis Tickle's writings and work, we have information and links available on our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at NotSeenRadio. If you want to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dalt Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And one more plug. If you haven't discovered our daily Religion Moments podcast yet, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have all of them archived on our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on anything. You can go back and explore them all, just like you were traveling back in time. After the break, Katie Scroggin reviews a new book on French philosopher Alain Badiou by Hollis Phelps. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Over the past decade, several French philosophers have been making contributions to religious discussions. One of the most prominent has been Alain Badiou, who has written recent works on ethics and on St. Paul. Hollis Phelps has just come out with a critical biography of Alain Badiou. Our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, offers this review. Some scholars have noted what's been called a religious turn in philosophy, the reappearance of a divine figure or force into philosophical thought, even after the so-called death of God. But French philosopher Alain Badiou maintains reality itself possesses no divine entity or purpose, that no supernatural realm drives the universe. In spite of his assertions, some critics suspect that Badiou's philosophy does indeed manifest its own particular theology. In his book, Alain Badiou, Between Theology and Anti-Theology, Religious scholar Hollis Phelps considers whether or not these critics, or even those who hold Badiou to be entirely free of theology, are justified in their interpretations. Phelps devotes a solid first portion of the book to clarifying just what Badiou's philosophy entails, a welcome elaboration given the fact that set theory serves as the basis for the French thinker's often dense reasoning, and that unexamined assumptions about Badiou's terminology could easily lead readers into simplistic understandings of his claims. Very basically, the philosopher asserts that one great power is not running or ordering the universe. Instead of such an overarching entity or force that contains all being within itself, the universe consists of infinite multiplicities, an infinite number of worlds. Although existence in itself isn't mathematical per se, 
The only means we have to describe what is expressible about being in general is math, due to its ability to think at a completely abstract level, unlimited by fallible instruments or channels such as experience, language, or the senses. In other words, there is nothing that can be thought beyond math's means to describe it, no inaccessible something or someone ordering and unreachable by that math itself. But it would be false to say that this scheme results in an anything-goes universe, devoid of truth and hence of ethics. Truth, in fact, occupies a central place in Badiou's philosophy, even if it doesn't mean capital T, true for everything and everyone truth. Rather, Badiou says that truths emerge as the result of events. Although difficult to define without reference to set theory, by event, the philosopher means an occurrence which, although it emerges within a given situation, can't be described or defined by the language characteristic of that situation. Instead, like Badiou's examples of the French Revolution and the appearance of Schoenberg's twelve-tone scale, that event fundamentally transforms the situation itself. But events aren't predetermined by some cosmic timetable or plan. Just because the conditions are present that would allow an event to happen does not mean that it will happen. Such conditions might be ignored or go unrecognized, and the event never becomes a reality. But it is only when an individual recognizes an event, gives it a name, and remains faithful to its consequences, that a mere individual becomes a subject, more or less an autonomous actor. One of the problems with the event, though, is the fact that we can't know from within a given situation if what we've named and towards which we're acting faithfully really qualifies as an event or not. That determination always occurs in retrospect. Only from some point in the future will we be able to determine that an event has taken place. The most we can do in the present moment, then, is what Badiou calls forcing, making a decision to name what we're seeing as an event. It is then our job to stay faithful to the results of that event. If all of this sounds suspiciously theological to you, you're in good company, especially when we consider the fact that one of Badiou's books is devoted entirely to St. Paul as a model faithful subject, even if, the philosopher says, the resurrection to which Paul is remaining faithful was not a true event due to its basis in mythology. Phelps points out that this work about the Apostle is often central in determining how critics interpret the French scholar. Either they overemphasize the book's place in establishing the theological nature of Badiou's thinking, or they ignore the book in favor of the author's more explicitly mathematical writings, the better to argue for the complete absence of any theological overtones in his philosophy. In agreeing that there is indeed a theological aspect to some of Badiou's thought, Phelps examines the philosopher's indebtedness to theologians such as Kierkegaard. At the same time, he argues for a more nuanced approach to this thinker and asks us to consider the entirety of his work when attempting to judge just how theological or anti-theological Badiou is. This is where Phelps's earlier extensive examination of what the philosopher means by the terms he uses is especially welcome. The author goes beyond just noticing that Badiou uses religious terminology, such as resurrection and fidelity, and reminds us that for someone so emphatic about the creative power of language, Metaphor is never just metaphor. Phelps also reminds us that for Badu, truths are locally situated and can't be neatly transferred from one situation to another. In other words, there is no grand capital H history that encompasses all events, whether within a particular situation or throughout multiple situations. And so when the author alleges that Badu's philosophy displays an eschatological character, we should listen carefully. 
We thought, based on Phelps's outline, that for Badiou, there's no goal toward which the universe is moving, no purpose or single truth hiding behind all of these events. But the author reminds us that a Badouian event can essentially be the resurrection or reactivation of a previous event, a sort of stepping off from the endpoint of a previous event's hidden trajectory to continue on its own path. But how can truths, which are so localized, die out in one location and pop up for renewal in another? Unwilling to say that a larger, all-encompassing being connects them, Badiou relies on what Phelps calls a notion of grace that enables belief precisely where given knowledge cannot offer explanations, a notion apparently just as contradictory to an anti-theological thinker as the suggestion that one being is running the universe. Finally, when considering the fact that we can only know whether or not an event was an event from the vantage point of the future, it would follow that an event has some goal or purpose toward which its development, and subject's fidelity to it, tends. The book and its subject are much more nuanced and multi-layered than a brief summary can express. But Phelps not only makes a very dense system of thought accessible to newcomers, and refines understanding for those already familiar with Badiou, What's more significant is the way in which the author demonstrates the absolute necessity, if we're to approach any topic or thinker honestly, of looking at it in its entirety, instead of using one of its aspects or works to support our own assumptions. It's a broad lesson that could not only enhance our reading, but might make for increased understanding between any number of conversation partners as well. Katie Scroggin is an independent scholar and translator. She lives in Texas. She reviewed Alain Badiou, Between Theology and Anti-Theology, by Hollis Phelps. Things Not Seen is a production of Sandberg Media, LLC. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ's Studio 7 at their Navy Pier Studios in Chicago, Illinois. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place in Fredericksburg, Texas, and at our studios here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Alexander Badenock, and David Merrill. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive additional updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, getting over a cold, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. so much for taking the time. I really enjoyed talking to you. Well, I, your questions are knockouts, bud. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> can we do that again? We can do it any time <laughs> no, that you no, like. No, I'd no, love I to do. have you back. <laughs> Boy, it makes all the difference in the world when you've got somebody who knows what in the world he's talking about and he's done <laughs> some study. <laughs>